0: soon be returning to 1 Corinthians. We've got this week and one more week before uh, our church returns to our fall routine. Today I have just one slight emendation uh, to the bulletin. If uh, you are a kind of person who cares at all about uh, sermon titles, I happen not to be, Uh, but if you care at all about them, you might want to simply put part one at the end of this sermon title, Peace and Tribulation part one. We are going to read the entire section today, verses 16 through 33, which will take us to the end of Jesus' Upper Room Discourse. We're really only going to focus today on the first, roughly the first half, into verse 23. It seems like an odd place to stop, uh, because if you have the ESV, it splits at verse 25. Those headings aren't always all that helpful, and hopefully everything will become clear as we get into the text Regardless, today we're going to be looking uh, intently at verses 16, uh, halfway through verse 23, but we're going to read the whole thing. I think it holds very well together. It actually begins in verses uh, 17 through 19 with the disciples' confusion, and then again at the end, even though they think they've understood very well, they're still quite confused. And so it is one piece, so today let's consider this as part one uh, of a two-part series. Regardless, John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33, you can find that beginning on page 902 if you picked up an ESV on the way in. Before we read this text together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, our God, we come to you as those who are slow of understanding, just as your disciples prove themselves to be over and over again. They waited for the coming of the Holy Spirit, to show them all the truth about Yourself. And so we pray for that same Holy Spirit, that He would work in us, that we would see and behold wondrous things of our Savior, that we would be encouraged in our faith, we would be overjoyed by Your resurrection, to call upon You in faith, and to find peace in You. Help us this day to read your word, to read it aright, and to continue worshiping as we hear. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word for you. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. If you are at all familiar with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you will of course know Uh, of the bread that sustained Frodo and Sam on their journey toward Mordor. It was called Lembus. It was a bread made by elves with magical properties. Legolas told them that a single bite will fill a large man's stomach for an entire day. It was given to them to keep them. It was given uh, to the Fellowship of the Ring as they began their journey, and they were told this, Eat a little at a time and only at need. For these things are given to serve you when all else fails. One will keep a traveler on his feet for a day of long labor. Well, that seems pretty convenient, doesn't it? If you yourself were writing a fantasy, that's the sort of implausible element you might put in to make sure that the story can plod along at an even clip. If you're worried about uh, traversing worlds, covering mountainous uh, terrain and, and having this epic journey uh, the whole narrative would slow down an awful lot if you had to stop and hunt and gather every once in a while but uh, lembus that that's a good solution isn't it it gets everything moving and of course even lembus eventually loses its appeal even elven bread begins to crumble but in the midst of the story it really is the lembus that moves the story along even in the midst of all of the wars and the conquerings, in the midst of all the orcs and the sorcerers and the golemses, it's the lembas that moves the story along. By contrast, I grew up playing the Oregon Trail on our elementary school's green-screened computers. Perhaps some of you remember that video game. Where you had to get in your covered wagon and travel west to find new lands and new places, and you had to always adjust your rations and always stop to hunt and gather. And I don't think that in any of the games that I played I ever actually made it to Oregon. Something like Lembus would really have helped. Maybe it feels that same way in your spiritual life sometimes. You seem to make progress in fits, and starts. You seem to get on your way and you grow in your faith only to have some new obstacle stand in your way and slow you down. It seems to be the nature of fickle humanity in relation with the Lord. In this world, you will have tribulations. Perhaps as a result of those tribulations, sometimes our spiritual tanks feel full. Sometimes it seems like we're running on fumes. Wouldn't it be nice if we had an unlimited supply of spiritual gifting with no expiration date. Wouldn't it be nice if we had something to sustain us? Well, that's the promise Jesus is giving his disciples. In fact, it's the promise he's been giving his disciples throughout all of these chapters that we've looked at this summer. On and on again, he has, yes, been preparing his disciples for the moment of his departure, the point in time where he will go away. But much more, he's preparing them for ongoing life apart from his physical presence. And what he says about that ongoing life is that it is not lived on meager rations. It's not something that we have to worry about and scrimp and save, and only use a tiny bit. He speaks here of joy that can never be taken away. He speaks of a continued access to the Father. He speaks of peace even in the midst of tribulation talking about spiritual life with no expiration date, an unlimited supply. Of course, an unlimited supply of peace is not where our passage begins. As I mentioned already, our passage begins with confusion. You can't miss it. John seems to spend an inordinate amount of space showing us how the disciples were confused, and you've got to love the honesty of the writers of the New Testament. John was a part of these disciples, by the way, and he doesn't color over everything and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we understood it, we got it. He seems to take three or four verses to say, Jesus said this, and we were all standing around saying, what on earth could he mean? And nobody got it, and and we were kind of afraid to ask Jesus about it. Jesus says, now you see me, but soon you won't, soon you'll see me again, but none of them can figure it out. I had a conversation with someone some time ago who is not a believer, but they had read quite a bit of the Bible, and they were pretty familiar with the gospel stories, and they asked me the question, how is it that the disciples can so consistently be confused? They were there, they were present for his miracles, they saw them with their own eyes, they heard his teaching with uh, their own ears, and so why do they always miss the point? How could they be so dense? Maybe you ask the same question yourself. It doesn't seem very puzzling for us. Jesus is going away, and he's coming back. They won't see him when he's dead and buried in the tomb. They will see him again when he is raised on the third day. So from our vantage point, we don't see the difficulty. But their confusion confirmed what Jesus had already told them. Take a look back, same chapter, verse 12. Chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And sure enough, six verses later, everyone's standing there saying to themselves, we do not know what he's talking about. There are a couple reasons for that. One, we saw uh, two weeks ago, they can't understand these things yet because the Holy Spirit has not come. That's what he says. You cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. You see, there exists in the disciples, as there exists in each of us, a natural blindness to spiritual things. And that blindness persists until the Lord gives the grace of His Holy Spirit to open those eyes and to soften our hearts and to understand what the Lord is doing in the world. And so that hasn't happened yet, and so they persist in their confusion. It's a matter of uh, lacking a spiritual ability, lacking a spiritual discernment, but it's also a matter of timing. Now we've noticed several times this summer, if you've been with us, that the idea of a Savior, a Messiah who would be crucified, made very little sense to any of the Jews of the day. It didn't make any sense to the Pharisees who were planning to put him to death. It didn't even make sense to Jesus' own disciples. It was this paradigm shift that even though all the pieces were there, it won't be until later when you read in John chapter 20 and John says, the disciple who was there and looked into the tomb, saw it and believed. For until now, we did not discern, we did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. It's a, a matter of timing and vantage point. There is going to be this monumental paradigm shift in how they understood what the Messiah was supposed to be doing. And so what Jesus does here is not tell them all these things that they can't understand and will only be more of a burden. He treats them more like a, like a mystery writer. An ancient Near Eastern Agatha Christie And he drops all of these little hints. Here are the things you need to know about what's happening. I'm going away and I'm coming back. And they're all just going to lay there, latent, until they come back later. And they have that moment when the disciples look back and they say, it was right there the whole time. How did we miss it? So there's a matter of timing here. Jesus knows that when the disciples experience the joy of the resurrection, all of their confusion about Jesus will dissolve. not yet. Until that happens, they're going to be dealing with data that they cannot compute. So, uh, Jesus is answering their confusion, but maybe not in the straightforward way that we would think. That is what he's doing, though. You see that phrase that shows up twice in our passage, once in verse 20 and once in verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, you may know that this is the phrase Jesus used when he cuts to the chase. Get rid of all the other auxiliary information. Here's what you need to know. Bottom line up front. Truly, truly, I say to you, and it shows up twice in our passage. That means Jesus is giving them two bottom lines, two answers to their confusion. One of them shows up in verse 20 and the other halfway through verse 23. So I told you that everything would become clear later. and We're going to focus today on just the first answer. That first statement, truly, truly, I say to you, what is the clue that the disciples need to know? What is it that you and I need to know about Jesus going away and coming back? And the answer Jesus gives is the incredible joy of the resurrection. The incredible joy of the resurrection. It's a joy that is able to swallow up all of their sorrow. It is a joy that will last, and no one can take it away. It is a joy that they will take with them wherever they go. It is a joy so wonderful, it will answer all of their questions about what Jesus has been doing in the world. But it's a joy they won't understand until they've experienced it. Take a look at his answer in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That last little bit, that's the phrase that tells us that what Jesus is talking about here is the resurrection. The disciples are asking, what does Jesus mean by a little while? And Jesus zeroes in on what's going to take place in just a few hours, and it's going to be all over in just a few days. And that was the disciples' experience. The world was rejoicing. The world was happy, and they were weeping. The world thought that they had made their final triumph, and all of the hopes of the disciples were dashed. Of course, the world rejoices. This is exactly what they had been hoping for all along, all throughout John's gospel. Back in chapter 5, it says the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because He was healing on the Sabbath, and He was making these grand claims about God being His Father. Chapter 7, we're told that Jesus no longer ministered in Judea because of the bloodlust of the religious leaders. Chapter 8, Jesus told the Jews plainly they were seeking to kill him because he spoke the truth. Chapter 11, after the raising of Lazarus, the chief priests and the Pharisees took counsel together and they made plans to put him to death. So it goes through the gospel, all of their plans. All of their schemes, all of their machinations, trying to get their hands on Jesus, and yet narrowly, over and over again, Jesus escapes the hands of violent men because his hour had not yet come. And their plans are confounded at every turn, but soon they would have him. Soon he would be betrayed with a kiss, soon delivered into their hands soon bound and tried, soon beaten and crucified. And of course they rejoiced. Everybody loves when a plan comes together. Where are the disciples when all this is happening? They're going to be scattered, just as Jesus said they were going to be scattered, on the run for fear that they too would be caught up in all of this. Or later they're stuck hidden behind closed doors for fear that someone else would come along and, and wrap them up in a charge of treason and insurrection and trying to overthrow the Roman government. They were running as far and as fast as they could away from this. They were weeping over the loss of their friend. Their hopes were dashed concerning all of their dreams of the kingdom of God. When you look in Luke chapter 24 and you see the disciples who are on the Emmaus road and unsuspecting that that Jesus himself was with them, their words say it all. They say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. And they wept, and they lamented. But a time was coming, Jesus tells them. A time is coming, and it's very soon, when all of their sorrow would turn into joy. Mark well that language. It does not say your sorrow will open into joy, or will make way for joy, or will clear the way so that you can experience joy. Their sorrow will become joy joy inexpressible and filled with glory, the very circumstance that brought them sorrow will bring them unmeasurable joy that will last. How is that possible? The only way that is possible, if their sorrow becomes joy, is if the very thing that caused their sorrow somehow becomes joyous for them. Only if the crucifixion is not the tragic end of the story, but the glorious beginning of the story. You see, if Jesus' earthly ministry were produced into a television show, we would see him coming out of the tomb on the third day, and then the screen would go black, and then we would read those words to be continued. That's why it can be joyous. Because the very thing that was sorrowful for them becomes joyous. It's just like a woman in labor, isn't it? There's anguish for a time, and then joy. Remarkable joy. Joy such that the anguish of labor is no longer remembered now you mothers may quibble with the text on that one i happen to have it on good authority that uh, when a woman gives birth and uh, has the joy of holding a child that uh, that there is not some vacuum where all the memories of the labor were at one time it's not that they simply vanish and there's this case of amnesia i've been privy to some of those conversations where young mothers sit around and they share their birth stories Like soldiers talking about the war that they all served in together. And sometimes the more seasoned mothers join in, prove positive that there is no amnesia for those mothers. That the memory doesn't simply go poof. That's okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about here with this illustration. The joy of having a child does not create that vacuum where the memories of the birth ought to be, but the overwhelming joy of having the child so colors the birth experience that those two things cannot be separated. Because of the joy of the child, that labor becomes a cherished event. Ask any mother. I don't care how harrowing the ride in the back seat on the way to the hospital. I don't care how many hours she was in labor. I don't care what her terrible birth pains were like and how many contractions she had. Ask that mother with her baby nestled in her arms, was it worth it? She will say yes. A thousand times yes. Why? Because it brought the joy of a child. It also brings an incredible amount of work as you take that baby home and try to figure out what in the world you are doing. That's another sermon. But what is this illustration teaching us? It's teaching us that if we as believers want to know, we want to understand what Jesus is all about, we cannot stop at the crucifixion. The joy of the resurrection ought to so color our understanding of the crucifixion, that we cannot separate them. We have to always look through the crucifixion and to the resurrection. It is the union of those two things, not one of them in isolation to the other. It is the union of Jesus' death on behalf of elect sinners. It is the union of that with his resurrection on behalf of redeemed saints that constitutes all the joy of salvation for the believer. You may not have one without the other to do that, would be to create a sort of halfway Christianity, to sell the gospel short, to cut the gospel and the joy of resurrection in half. We dare not, we cannot separate the crucifixion and the joy of the resurrection and leave Christianity intact. You need to understand this. You need to understand this because there are some churches, and maybe sometimes we slip into this realm, there are some churches that seem to always present Jesus as continually dying for us. He shows up, you know, in, uh, in hymns as the perpetually bleeding Lord. He shows up in stories and in sermons. He shows up in images and on crucifixes as the one who is always in agony, always shedding his blood for his people. And it has the effect of always impressing upon us the weight and the guilt of our sin. Now, I don't want for a minute for us to think that we can have any kind of rejoicing without leveling with that reality. There is no salvation where there is no shedding of blood. Where there is no cross of Christ, there is no salvation for sins. The power of salvation resides in the fact that on the cross, Jesus bore all the sins of his elect. And he allowed the overwhelming weight of our guilt to crush him to death. He bore our sins all the way to the grave. And if you have not trusted in the sin-atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you are still in your sins and there is no salvation for you. I don't care why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here to make somebody else happy. Maybe your parents drug you here. Maybe your spouse brought you here, and you just want to do the right thing. If you are not believing in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no salvation for your sins. And the weight and the guilt of those sins will drag you to hell, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We cannot play fast and loose with this. We need the cross. There is no salvation without the cross of Calvary, but the joy of our salvation resides in the fact that when Jesus emerged from the tomb on the third day, he left our sins in the grave where they belong. Without the bloody cross, there is no forgiveness. Without the empty tomb, there is no joy. It's a halfway Christianity that fixates on the cross and never realizes the joy of the resurrection. Beware of preaching to yourself when you see your own sin. Beware of preaching to somebody else when you're sharing the gospel. Only that Christ died. That's half of the gospel. He died, yes, for sins, but he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And those who are in him have new life and joy in abundance, and forgiveness and peace in him. In the fictional land of Narnia, the people suffered because it was always winter, and it was never Christmas. It is a more tragic thing for some Christians to believe that it is always Good Friday and never Easter. We're approaching now the, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, sparking the Protestant Reformation that was already in play, but actually got a lot more uh, acclaim and, and a lot more attention drawn to it with Luther's action. And the first of his 95 theses stated that when Christ called us to repent, he meant that our entire lives ought to be a life of continual repentance. And that is true. That is so true. But what we see in the resurrection is that when we strike the bell of repentance, the Lord causes it to resound into a note of rejoicing for his people. When we understand the weight that Christ bore on the cross. It drives us to the joy of the resurrection and causes us to rejoice. We're going to come in a little while to the Lord's table. It is important that when we come to the table, we don't think that we're coming to an altar. There is no sacrifice at this table. The Lord was sacrificed once. That sacrifice was sufficient, it was perfect, and it was completed. And so now we come rejoicing that there is one who is sacrificed, but there is one who is raised. And we come in communion with him, the risen Lord. We come believing in the power of his resurrection, and that means that if you are in Christ, all the sin that followed you in here, like the dust cloud around Pigpen's feet, must shrivel and die before the sight of a resurrected Savior. Until you know the joy of believing in the resurrected Lord, you don't really know who Jesus is. Because it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that proclaims the truth of who he is for his people. Take a look at verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in the Greek. But you need to know that there are two different verbs in this larger passage that are translated by our ESV as ask. One of those verbs means basically inquire, to ask a question, to to seek out information. Uh, The other one is to make a request, to ask someone for something, what we generally think of as prayer for the Lord to give or to do or to heal. Now, in verse 19, the word that's used is inquire. So it basically says, Jesus knew that they wanted to inquire of him. But then in verse 23, it's the same verb. What does he say? In that day, that is in the day when you witness and you recognize the joy of the resurrection, when all of your sorrow has been swallowed up in resurrection joy, in that day you will inquire nothing of me. You see what he's saying? I know you're puzzled now. I know you don't quite understand what it is I'm doing and what it is that I've come to do for you. But when you see the resurrection, then all the pieces will fall into place. All of your questions about who I am and what I've done will be made clear in that day you will ask no more questions of me because you will see it. And that's what John says in chapter 20. The disciples saw that glory face to face. They beheld the risen Lord. We don't see it the same way, do we? We don't see him with our external eyes, our physical eyes, but we do see him with eyes of faith. And the writer who wrote to the Hebrews says that's the the real key to Christian living, isn't it? Chapter 12, verse 2, Hebrews tells us this is a secret, that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who is he? He's the one who endured the cross. But where is he? He is seated. He is raised. He's at the right hand of the Father. And as we journey with Him, we are kept by Him. As we look to Him, where He is raised in the right hand of God the Father. There's another promise for God's people, though. Not just that we would look now as in a mirror darkly. Not just that we would grope in the darkness and try to see something that is so very hard to see in our daily lives because it's good for us to talk about seeing Christ by faith while we're all sitting here together and we're singing nice songs and then the benediction happens and we go out into the world and we have those tribulations and it's a whole lot harder but he says it's not always going to be like this It's not always going to be the sense that you're going to be looking for me and straining to see whether you can see me with eyes of faith and explaining that to your neighbor who has no idea what that even means. It's not always going to be like that. It's going to be different. There will be a day when we will be with him, we will see him as he is, and in that day we will know him even as we are fully known. We jumped over verse 22, but it seems to be that this is what Jesus is saying in that passage. There's a small change here, an almost imperceptible change in the line of sight. But Look at what Jesus says. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. An almost imperceptible change, but it's the promise of what the Lord will do to keep his people. Isn't that where our joy is to be found? Not in knowing that I'm pretty good at looking for Jesus and finding out where he is. But in knowing that he sees us, in knowing that he has called us, in knowing that he keeps us and sustains us through every trial and tribulation, and there is a day coming when all of our faith will be made sight. In the midst of that time, we've been given the resurrection joy. There is a joy that can sustain us much better than Lembus on the way to Mordor. The joy is to believe in the Lord who was crucified for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried. And He was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He shows us, and and we know Him because He's watching us and calling us calling us to lay down our sins and to realize the joy of being united to him and having a share in his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, I know that joy is sometimes hard to find here and now. But the Lord says, I see you. I'm working my joy into you, even though it may be imperceptible from where you are. And so believe in him, rejoice in him, when you go to see your own sin, preach the cross to yourself. Preach the dying Savior to yourself to deal with your sin, but preach also the resurrected Savior and the glory and the joy that is to be found in Him. It's the joy of the resurrection that proclaims to us the truth of who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? O gracious Lord, our God, we pray that if any have come in today confused, as the disciples were, as to who you are and what you're doing, that we would have seen the Lord who is raised again to give life to your people, keep us on our way. Thank you, O Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you that we come to your table and commune with you, for you are not dead, but living, We come to receive life by being united to your life, by your Spirit. Help us to come and to commune with you in spirit and in truth, we pray in your name. Amen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread.